Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm Bob Grove, your host. Tonight, we're going to discuss sustainable fashion, the environmental impact of what we wear, how we as individuals can make clothing choices that not only help save the planet, but save us money and help improve our health. We're joined tonight by Judy Ansel with the Cross Border Network, Rhiannon Wallace-Dimby with the KU Aquatic Ecology Lab, Eileen Bobowski, Executive Director of the Sewing Lab, and Elizabeth Ingram, Founder Designer of Loon. I want to remind our listeners that the climate crisis is a series of cause and effects. Greenhouse gases in our atmosphere absorb heat from the sun and cause an increase in the average of the Earth's surface temperature. This global warming causes long-term climate changes to the planet's weather patterns, and this climate change causes weather disasters, hurricanes, floods, droughts. We've just experienced record cold temperatures caused by this disruption of weather patterns, allowing Arctic air to reach all the way down to Texas. You know, these weather disasters cost us billions of dollars in lives and property damage. And the way we fight them is by stopping their root cause. That's reducing the amount of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. The EPA reports that industry is the third largest producer of greenhouse gas emissions. Energy production is the number one producer of greenhouse gases, food production number two, and industry comes in third with 21% of all global house green, greenhouse gas emissions. What surprises me is that of the thousands of different industries around the world, one single industry is responsible for a full 39% of all global industrial greenhouse gas emissions. And that's the fashion industry, the clothes on our backs. That's shocking to me when I think about it. Of all the complex industries in the world, something as simple as the clothes we wear is responsible for 39% of all industrial greenhouse gas emissions. The fashion industry is also a major source of waste landfill and a major contributor of toxic chemicals and microplastics to our environment. So the reason fashion has such a huge impact on climate and the environment is due to a marketing concept called fast fashion. Fast fashion is an approach to clothing that emphasizes moving from catwalk to factory to retail store in as little as two weeks. Do you remember when designers used to have spring and fall fashion shows? how a few months later, these designs would reach the local malls and we'd be able to buy them for the rest of the season. Well, today we're hit with a new fashion trend every two weeks. And that's typically cheap clothing designed to be worn a couple times then to fall apart and be thrown away. This marketing concept was invented by a Spanish gentleman named Armancio Ortega. He's the owner of Zara, an apparel store that produced something like 20 new clothing collections each year. Zara started going international in the 1990s. It was a Spanish store, so it went international. And by 2017, about 20 years later, Mr. Ortega actually became the world's richest man worth $85 billion. So you can see this fast fashion trend is worth a lot of money and it has a huge impact on our environment and our economy. We're all familiar with fast fashion, even if we don't know what we're buying. You've ever bought from H&M, Gap, Forever 21, Target, and you've bought fast fashion. Elizabeth, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that fast fashion used to be a part of your daily routine. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. And um, thank you for having me. Um, so I um, actually spent about five years in New York City. Um, I was working in corporate partnerships and nonprofit fundraising for a big national nonprofit um, and our offices were actually on Fifth Avenue, um, right next to the Empire State Building. 
Um, and I lived uptown and downtown and I couldn't make it, um, you know, to or from work without hitting up the same big box stores. And so I think it's really easy to get caught up in that fast fashion cycle um, when you're constantly being bombarded with, you know, images and marketing um, and, and the whole sale concept. So, you know, I think for me personally, um, you know, it is easy to get caught up because it's just so readily available. So I think um, consumer choice, you know, plays a really important role um, in combating fast fashion. And I think we, you know, um, vote with our dollars. And so um, after about five years in New York City, um, you know, I would take the bus and I would walk, um, you know, to and from work every day. And I just thought, you know, there's, I, I love New York, I love Manhattan, but you know, it just, it, it just kind of lost its luster after a while. So I um, relocated back to Kansas City, um, where I noticed that, you know, because you have to intentionally get in your car and drive to make a purchase, um, that once I moved out of, um, you know, a, a centrally located, you know, uh, shopping, you know, uh, area that, you know, I was a little bit more mindful in the choices that I was making. Um, so it's just interesting to, to understand, um, the, the choice we make, but also the, re the availability of fast fashion. Well, thank you. Ronan, you're on the KU campus in Lawrence. Um, the students are, I mean, do, are they aware of fast fashion? Is it a big part of student life? Yeah, students are definitely aware of fast fashion. Um, a lot of the fast fashion websites like uh, Forever 21, H&M, um, Boohoo, some of those clothing lines actually market a lot to students. So like if you have a valid student email, you can get like discounts, like more discounted off if they're like already running like a sale or something like that. But um, so a lot of it is marketed towards us and it is just like what was said before is so readily available. Um, but a lot of people are aware of the, you know, the impacts of fast fashion and there have been a lot more conversations recently, um, like within the past couple of years and things of like fast fashion, the impacts of um, fast fashion, like on the environment and on um, human labor and everything like that. Um, especially on, I want to say like social media sites like Twitter and things like that. Um, within like the past uh, year or so, at least, you know, um, students, young adults have been having a conversation with um, about it was sparked by I want to say um, an influencer and one of their brands and like the ethics behind it and like not paying their workers and like how can we do better um, and not stop consuming or um, be more ethical in our consumption. Well, thank you. Eileen, you and I remember when they would have the annual fashion shows and you know the new lines would come out and that's what we'd live with for the year. When did you first become aware of fast fashion as this, this new trend? Uh, I think when I started um, leading the Sewing Labs nonprofit, I'm the executive director with the Sewing Labs, and we're all about repurposing and upcycling um, 100% of the fabric that is in our room that our students use is all been donated to us. And so therefore it's being upcycled. Uh, same thing with notions, uh, sewing machines. And so I started to do a little bit of research. I read some wonderful books. There's a book called Fashionopolis. Um, 
uh, by Dana Thomas, which is all about the fast fashion industry. And that was really enlightening for me. Um, at the same time, I came across a wonderful book called Mending Matters by Katrina Rodebau, um, where people should take the approach of mindfully mending their clothing in an artful, spiritual way, um, which can really be beneficial for your health as well. Uh, sewing is really good for your health. Um, there's another wonderful book called The Conscious Closet by Elizabeth Klein, where you can take the approach of really looking at the fashions in your closet. Back in the 1960s, the average person had 25 pieces of clothing that they rotated through. And now, you know, you think about some of the closets and yeah. the walk-in space that some people have. It's just tremendous, um, that consumable mentality that we have. And so um, we're huge proponents of slow fashion at the labs. Thank you. That's very interesting. So you're, you're kind of looking at the anti-fast fashion. You're the slow fashion movement. Let's talk about some of the impacts of fast fashion. There are four stages to the clothing life cycle, I believe, um, you know, the fiber production, and that's creating the textiles. Clothing production, where they actually sew the textiles into a piece of clothing. Clothing use, that's us wearing it. And it's after use. What happens to it when we're done wearing it? So let's start with the first stage, fiber production. And this has some huge impacts on the environment. Fast fashion has been made possible and has grown hand in hand with the use of fossil fuels as fibers. We're talking about polyester, acrylic, nylon, those kinds of things. These are actually textiles made up of plastic threads created from the same crude oil that is refined and burned in our cars. And just as burning gas in our cars causes pollution and greenhouse gas emissions, so creating and burning fossil fuel-based textiles creates just as much pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. 63% of all textiles today are fibers made from petrochemicals. That's made from fossil fuels. 51% of all global textiles are polyester. When you look at the labels on your clothing, you'll find most of that is polyester. To get a feel for the amount of greenhouse gases this causes, let's consider the amount of energy it takes to produce one kilogram of different things. I'm going to use megajoules to measure this energy. A megajoule is roughly the amount of energy it takes to run a 60 watt light bulb for a little less than five hours, okay? So let's start with something simple like glass. It takes 15 megajoules to produce one kilogram of glass. That would be like the, the panes of glass in the window of your house. So that's 15 megajoules per kilogram. It takes 36 megajoules to produce one kilogram of steel. You know, the steel in our skyscrapers. It takes 123 megajoules to produce one kilogram of polyester. Wow, stop and think about that. It's taking roughly three times as much energy to produce polyester as it does steel. And other petrofibers use even more energy. Acrylic uses 170 megajoules per, per kilogram. And nylon, nylon uses 250 megajoules per kilogram. That's a lot of energy and greenhouse gas emissions just to create polyester and other petrochemicals. The next stage in the clothing life cycle is clothing production, taking the textiles and sewing them into actual clothing. This stage produces significant amounts of pollution. A World Resources Institute report in 2017 found that the garment manufacturing accounts for 20% 20, 20 of all global industrial water pollution. That's one fifth of all industrial water pollution. A 2015 Alternatives Journal article reported that approximately 8,000 synthetic chemicals are used to turn raw materials into textiles, and that much of these chemicals end up in our water systems. 
2017 Ella MacArthur Foundation study found that 30% of all substances used to manufacture clothing pose a significant risk to human health. Even natural fibers like cotton present risks. Cotton is grown on just 3% of the world's farmland, yet uses 16% of global insecticides and 25% of the world's herbicides. That's putting a disproportionate amount of toxic chemicals into the environment when there are more sustainable options available. Fast fashion also impacts the lives of garment workers around the world and is often cited for safety, health, and human rights violations. Judy, I know you've got experience with Mexican sweatshops that produce garments for U.S. fast fashion. Tell us what you learned about these workers and what their working conditions are like. Well, the activity of my organization, the Cross-Border Network, began with NAFTA and uh, with the uh, outsourcing and offshoring of, of U.S. Uh, production and all kinds of things, including garments. Um, it Actually, the offshoring of uh, uh, jeans and uh, productions began in the 1970s. You might remember the International Ladies Garment Workers uh, um, slogan of look for the union label. Uh, I became really aware of it in 19, uh, late 1990s uh, when Lee Jeans in St. Joe, Missouri shut down and moved to Mexico. And uh, we actually brought up a group of Mexican maquila workers. Some of them worked in garment. Uh, they worked in all kinds of things, electronics and so on, from the border. And uh, we brought them to St. Joe to meet the uh, former uh, Lee Jeans workers. And we were afraid, you know, like there was so much rhetoric about you're stealing my job, et cetera, et cetera. But they sat down and they started talking and they started realizing how, how they had been so victimized by this whole process. Um, Lee Jeans, in fact, used the American workers to train the Mexican workers without telling them that they were also going to lose their jobs. But um, many, many of the uh, conflicts that we got involved in were promoting rights to independent unions and rights to unionize in Mexico. And one of the ones I remember most, most clearly was a struggle at, at a company called La Hat in Gomez Palacio, Durango, which is about mm, less than 100 miles from the border. And it's a, it's a town that uh, has deve developed production for export. So the garments that are made there are shipped to the United States. And the workers in this particular factory complained about all sorts of things, uh, working conditions issues and wages. Uh, the maquilas during that time and, and really up until today pay what, what we call wages of hunger. Uh, the Mexican minimum wage at the time NAFTA passed was less than $4 a day. It is still, until uh, last year when, when it was the border wage was raised, it's still maybe $4.50 or $5 a day. Uh, at the same time, uh, Mexico became a huge importer of food from the United States, and people just couldn't afford the prices. And so that's why we called it wages of hunger. The working hours were long. Uh, the workers were fired if they spoke up against um, unsafe conditions. Uh, many, uh, very often they, they were working in unsafe factories um, and when they complained, they were fired. So many of them tried to unionize. Uh, we began, my organization uh, tried to put pressure on the um, end users, the, the, the companies that were purchasing these products 
And I had a really interesting experience because um, we were sent labels by the workers who took pictures of, of the labels. And, you know, the, the, label, the, the labels in this particular place were Levi's, uh, Aeropostale. Uh, there was a Chinese company called Mud Jeans for a while. I don't know if they still exist. And so I, I had the uh, opportunity to call these companies and ask them, hey, you're supposed to have a code of conduct uh, for your suppliers. And I'll never forget, I called a guy from Aeropostale. I left a message. He called me back within 15 minutes and threatened to sue me. Um, and and I, I, I said, but uh, your jeans are being made in this factory and you're violating the rights of the workers and you're violating your own code, I think. But, you know, where is your code of conduct? Because very often they don't even publish them uh, for their suppliers. And he said, we do not produce in that factory. And I'm going to sue you if you keep saying it. And so I sent him a copy of the label. And uh, and he called me back very sheepishly and said, oops, uh, well, actually, we're not supposed to be producing in that factory, but one of our jobbers uh, couldn't get it done in some other factory, so we're producing in that factory. And I said, well, fix it. And, of course, they didn't. And... Uh, we, we ended up going to Levi Strauss, and I remember a meeting we went to in San Francisco uh, where we had a big demonstration out front uh, just to soften them up uh, because generally they don't want to do anything. And, and then we went in, and we had partner organizations that had worked on, uh, <laughs> kind of worked on the gap and uh, uh, gotten results from the gap. And we were threatening to do the same thing to Levi Strauss with consumer boycotts and, you know, bad publicity and so on and so forth. And they eventually did do some things to help the workers uh, get their rights to pressure the Mexican government, the state government in Mexico, uh, to get the workers a, uh, a union election. But then you have the corrupt Mexican unions coming in with all their thugs. And I mean, it's such an uphill battle. You wouldn't believe it to get justice for these workers. Those workers still don't have decent working conditions. So that was that's one a ubiquitous thing. I mean, when we talk about worker conditions like that, and we've all heard about the Bangladesh conditions, you know, yeah. the thousands of people that are dying in the fires. Is that an outlier or, or do you see similar types of things in Mexico and in the United oh, States? Yeah. What, what are worker conditions like here in the United States? Wait, uh, well, first off, wages today in Mexico are cheaper than China. Yeah. Uh, you know, wages in China have been going up uh, because uh, it's a policy of the Chinese government. Wages in Mexico have until just recently been rock bottom. And AMLO, the president of Mexico, recently has pushed to raise the minimum wage on the border. And they have a labor law reform because of NAFTA 2.0 that was just negotiated, which will theoretically help workers raise their own wages. And what was your second question? Sweatshops. Do we have sweatshops in the U.S.? Have they all been yeah. moved offshore? Yeah. We thought we got rid of the sweatshops in the U.S. with unionization um, you know, back in the 1930s and 40s. But yeah, there are sweatshops. There has been a lot of exposure of sweatshops in, in the Los Angeles area. Most of these sweatshops operate with undocumented workers. Um, they're you know, basically undercover. The workers are scared. They're, they're afraid to organize because they'll be reported to ICE, 
for deportation. So yeah, there are sweatshops. The extent of them is really hard to know. There's human trafficking going on in the United States. Um, and there have been a number of recent scandals over the last 10 years or so involving human trafficking. It's really tragic. I mean, we think of, of fast fashion and environmental things. I mean, we need to keep in mind the human, the human well, element yeah, of that. You know, what's happening to the workers? Yeah, and the workers suffer suffer from the health and safety violations, but then they also suffer from the pollution. Um, toxic chemicals. Yeah, yeah, we were just talking about that. Yeah, we've seen that a good deal in Bangladesh, where the out, outflow of poisons and toxics from these factories is polluting the water that the workers have to use to wash and to drink and so on and so forth. I hear that the, the high rates of cancer and such that you, you right. may have a, a, a career of three years and then you're too sick to work anymore. Mm. Well, most of these sweatshops want young workers and they fire them after they reach the age of 30, 35. I've yeah. seen that over and over again in Mexico. Wow. That's tragic. Let's move on to the next stage of clothing's life cycle. And that's huge. That's us wearing it. Um, that seems pretty straightforward. The, the big environmental impact actually comes from washing and drying our clothes. Um, dryers in our homes are actually one of the largest users of energy you know, within the residence. So hanging your clothes to dry can have a big impact on the planet and save you a lot of money. You mean, you're just not paying for that electricity. But in the last few years, we've started learning that washing our clothes has an even larger impact on the environment and that's caused by microfibers. A 2011 study found that around 1,900, 1,900 synthetic plastic microfibers per garment are released each time we run a load of wash. And that's because these, um, these microfibers are so tiny that they're not filtered out by our wastewater treatment plants. They end up in our rivers and our oceans. Uh, University of Plymouth did a 2016 study that found 700,000 microfibers are released by a standard load of family laundry. So that's every load of laundry you do is releasing 700,000 microfibers into our environment. The Ella MacArthur Foundation again reported that there are 1.4 quadrillion microfibers in our oceans as a result of washing clothing. Quadrillion, that's, that's a number followed by 15 zeros. I can't get my mind around that. And that up to 1.7 million tons of microfibers, and we're not counting the microfibers, we're talking weight, tons of microfibers, 1.7, are being released into the ocean every year. This has to be having a huge impact on our environment. Another study in 2011 found that 85% of all man-made debris on shorelines around the world is made up of microfibers. Rihanna, you work with the um, KU Aquatic Ecology Lab, and I know you're specializing in microplastics. Can you tell us more about that and, and what its impact on the environment is? Yeah, sure. So um, a little bit. So I do work for the KU Aquatic Ecology Lab, which is part of the Kansas Biological Survey up at KU. Um, my research is focused on like microplastics and effects on aquatic organisms. So I'm more so in the freshwater sector of things, but I could definitely give a breakdown of it. So if you've ever used any type of beauty care product that had the little microbeads, like I know early mid 2000s, there was a lot of microbead products um, and microbeads are a type of polyethylene plastic, um, then you are familiar with what microplastics are. So for example, we categorize microplastics as something that is less than five millimeters in size. 
For reference, a P is about 10 millimeters in size. So we're working with something that is smaller than the size of the P. Um, microplastics as a whole, it's a pretty new field, like really taking off in the early uh, 2000s. So there's a lot that we just don't know yet. Um, a lot of microplastic research has been focused on the marine sector. And while that is extremely important to know what's happening with our oceans, we don't have that much research on freshwater and freshwater is equally important to understanding. Um, and also goes for, we don't know that much on human health yet. We can speculate, but we like really don't know. The rise of plastics, especially with uh, microfibers, are getting more and more into the system with washing our clothes. And we've been seeing a lot of it in like drinking water and things like that, right? Fragments and fibers were the predominant particles that were found um, by the World Health Organization when it came to um, drinking waters is through um, like sewage sludge and then just the washing of clothes. This is Bob Grove, and you're listening to the Climate Hour. What I have been seeing um, is a lot of um, microplastic particles in the lodge in the upper GI. And so what this can cause is suffocation of the organisms. Um, we've also seen studies like higher mortality rates, um, reduced feeding rate, um, reduction in body mass and metabolic rates. Um, decreased predatory performance. Like this has a lot of serious effects on these organisms. Um, there was a study that was done um, on mussels that showed that plastics were getting into the gills of mussels, which um, decreased the mussels um, filtration rate of water. Um, and it also showed like tissue damage um, as well. And Another thing to keep in mind about these microfibers and microplastics is that they can collect a lot of pollutants. So like pollutants, pathogens, all of that can get stuck to these microplastics as well. So when you're thinking about um, the impact and stuff too on the in, um, organisms, like aquatic organisms, like yes, it's like causing like physical damage, but you also have to remember like like the toxicity of all of these as well and how the pollutants are getting stuck to the microplastics and being like introduced into their systems. So it's probably bringing not only the plastics, but like you were saying, the microplastics seem to be bonding the, the trash on our beaches. It sounds like it's pulling those toxins or absorbing those toxins and then entering our food streams. Yeah. So it does seem like that there's gonna be health impacts in your fresh rot or shrimp and such, but. You know, also, when we talk about those quadrillions of microfibers in the oceans, that has to be working its way up the food chain. It absolutely is. Um, like we have, again, like since we're, it's, it's still a very new field, we don't really know human impact, but we can speculate. So <laughs> if you're thinking like, if we're looking at how it's impacting the aquatic organisms and kind of apply that to ourselves, um, we've been seeing there was a 20, I want to say 2020 study that was done that showed that there was microplastic rain. And then a recent study out of January 2021 about microplastics being found in human placenta. And if we keep that in mind about how pollutants are being like attached to microplastics, we can kind of like get an idea of like how that could affect us. Um, like we could see an increased global risk of human and animal diseases because of the spreading of pathogens that are getting stuck to these microplastics. 
Um, again, like we don't know, we're finding it in our drinking water. We're finding it in our food, especially if you eat a lot of seafood. Um, Cause again, microplastics are very heavy. Um, that quadrillion number, which is very hard for me to think about too. Um, but there's just massive amounts that are in our like water systems and it's getting into our food sources. And it's even in things like table salt, sea salt, you know, like it's getting into every single thing. And so, I mean, hopefully as you know, time goes on, we understand and start to study more like human um, health impacts. But um, as of recently, we're, you know, we're just now seeing like it in our, um, really studying it in like our food and like seeing it in rain and in human placentas of all things, so. Yeah, thank you, that's, that's, that's tragic, but also fascinating. I think that's something that's gonna have a big impact on us in the future. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the um, final stage of clothing's life cycle, and that's its after use. You know, what happens to it when we don't wanna wear it anymore? And you know, it gets thrown away. We're talking fast fashion, we're talking high volumes of clothing that's just used and discarded. A 2016 McKinsey study reported that 60% of all clothing ends up in incinerators or landfills within a year of being made. Greenpeace is reporting that the United Kingdom throws away 350,000 tons of clothing each year. The Australian Bureau of Statistics reports that Australians throw away 500,000 tons of clothing each year. That's a lot. The EPA, and let's talk about Americans. The EPA reports that Americans throw away 14 million tons of clothing each year. This is a big American problem. We're throwing away 28 times as much clothing annually as the Aussies and 40 times as much as the Brits. And this is all ending up in our landfills. The Ella MacArthur Foundation, again, they've got a report that we burn or landfill one garbage truck of clothing. That's a garbage truck full of clothing every second. We throw away enough clothes to fill one and a half Empire State Buildings every day. And that's enough to fill the entire Sydney, Australia Harbor each year. So we're throwing away massive amounts of clothing. The EPA reports that in 1960, so we're going back about 50 years, in 1960, the US manufactured 1.76 million tons of clothing. And in 2017, we manufactured 16.89 million tons of clothing. The U.S. population had not even doubled during that period, so less than doubled, yet our clothing consumption increased almost 10 times. And um, donating your clothing is not a solution. I mean, a lot of us like to think, well, I'm buying all this clothing, but if I donate it, I'm doing good things. 98% of all donated clothing still ends up in the landfills. Um, You know, you're donating it to Goodwill Salvation Army, and they're going to take a, a certain amount of that clothing to resell. But most of that clothing they can't resell. They ended up selling it to other companies, you know, metal companies like Barley Inc., which is based in Miami. They buy the um, the, re- the used clothing from Goodwill and Salvation Army, and then sell it to third world countries. Barley um, ships their clothes to Latin America, and they end up in flea markets where those garments sell for like a dollar each. Barley takes in 120,000 pounds of clothing each week in just the Miami area. That's the weight equivalent of taking 30 cars a week and shipping them to Latin America. But even there, once it's shipped to Latin America and trying to sell them at a dollar a garment, less than 1% of that clothing sells and the other 99% is going into foreign landfills. Developing countries are so flooded with secondhand clothing now that they're starting to push back. East African countries like Kenya recently tried to ban their imports. And in 2018, Trump had to threaten them with tariffs 
if, I mean, basically telling Kenya that if you stop taking our waste, we're going to put tariffs on you. So Kenya back down. So this is a real problem. Our consumption of fast fashion is clearly not sustainable. We've talked about the um, climate impact of petrofibers like polyester, the impacts of over 8,000 synthetic chemicals entering our water system, the impacts of quadrillions, a huge number, quadrillions of microfibers in our ocean. And we've discussed the millions of ton, tons, millions of tons of fast fashion that ends up in our landfills every year. Most of it is fossil fuel derived plastics like polyester that will take hundreds of years to decay. So this is an ongoing problem. So let's shift now, let's look at the solutions. What are the solutions? We're hearing about concepts like slow fashion that emphasizes a personal relationship with clothing, one where trends and seasons don't matter and you can escape the stress of constant consumption by focusing on just styles that appeal to you or ethical fashion. That's fashion that is concerned with human rights, safe working conditions, fair wages, no child labor, and of course, sustainable fashions. Sustainable fashion concerned about environmental impacts, choosing fibers and materials that are organic, recycled or repurposed, limiting harmful chemicals into dyes, reducing energy and water consumption, eliminating waste. Remember earlier when we were talking about the megajoules used to produce, what was 123 megajoules used to produce one kilogram of polyester. Uh, another fabric that's becoming popular is hemp. It only takes 10 megajoules of energy to produce a kilogram of hemp. So compare that 10 megajoules to produce a piece of hemp fiber compared to polyester that takes 123. There are solutions out there. The recommendations I hear are things like slow down your pace of shopping and consumption, be conscious and mindful. We heard people talking about that. Be timeless, not trendy. Think long-term as opposed to short-term. Focus on quality instead of quantity. Consider the product's whole life cycle and think sustainable. Don't view products as disposable. Eileen, I think your organization addresses a lot of these sustainable concepts, repurposing, repairing, becoming a maker instead of a consumer. Tell us more about the sewing lab. Yeah, so um, we are... Uh an inclusive and welcoming community that teaches sewing towards employment, uh, entrepreneurship, and, and enrichment. Um, you know, earlier we were talking about the sweatshops. We're partnered with a lot of companies around greater Kansas City um, that are actively seeking trained stitchers. And we work hard to vet those companies. We make visits to those companies to ensure that they aren't sweatshops, um, but people can earn a living wage through sewing. And, and so in our environment here within the sewing labs, um, we've got a lot of... Um, uh, sustainable initiatives uh, that we like to um, encourage people to donate their fabric and encourage people to donate their notions and machines um, and then focus on workshops um, and coming across wonderful people like Elizabeth and what she's doing with sustainable fashion. Um, that's really important. Everything I wear is from a thrift shop. I shop thrift as much as I can. Um, when I was doing some research, I came across some interesting statistics that 16% of people said they would rather throw away a piece of clothing because they didn't know how to sew a button on. Um, the art of sewing is really becoming critical to our world. If you can't learn how to, like sewing a button on is like the most simplest thing you could do. And people say, I'd rather pitch clothing than sew a button on. We need to slow down, that's for sure. Um, and we're huge proponents of that um, here within the sewing labs. 
that's the whole fast fashion thing. Throw it away, buy something cheap. Don't worry about it. And obviously, if we want to stop fast fashion, if we want to stop all these abuses to our environment and our workers, you know, we need to learn to sew or we need to find somebody that will sew for us. I mean, uh, a career as a seamstress or you know, a tailor, those are, those are traditional careers that maybe need to come back. So I you're agree. actually teaching. I'm sure you do. So you're actually teaching people how to sew. People can come to the sewing lab and sit down in a machine and you'll teach them how yep. to sew on that button. Absolutely. We start with the basics um, and go through um, everything that you need. You could sew garments. Um, you could sew bags to cover your food um, instead of using plastic wrap or aluminum foil. <laughs> I mean, you name it. We've got... Um, both the domestic program, uh, uh, teaching on machines like I would have grown up on or have in my home, but we also teach on industrial equipment, much like people would find when they go to one of the companies in Kansas City that's seeking um, trained stitchers. And then we also offer a lot of different workshops um, for people to take if they don't want to um, necessarily go through a few weeks of training through a basic or advanced sewing class, they could just take workshops. I came across a woman recently who was sewing masks for us and she learned to sew from a cousin of hers who made a new outfit every night before school the next day when she was growing up as a teenager. Can you imagine how trendy that person would be today? Yeah, pretty amazing. I can't imagine doing that much sewing myself, but I guess if you love it. What about the machinery? I mean, it used to be, I know when I was growing up, everybody knew how to sewing machine in the house. We don't have that anymore. Um, short of buying a machine, I mean, is there some place to go and, I don't know, rent a machine? Or, I mean, how do we access equipment if we don't want to buy it? Absolutely. You can come to Open Sew. You can rent industrial uh, machines here at the sewing labs. We also offer something twice a year called Fabric Grab in the spring and the fall. And any excess machines that we have, we will sell as a fundraiser for our nonprofit. Um, we also will sell fabric and notions at that event as well. Well, thank you. Um, I, I think part of the problem is just re-imaging our fashion habits. We're so used to picking up the cheap stuff and throwing away, and we know it's wrong, but how do we break those habits? It seems that young people are a big part of the solution. You know, they're, they're the ones that are following these new trends. Um, a Cone study found that 94% of Gen Zers believe that companies should help address social and environmental issues. And since 2017, the purchase of secondhand apparel within that demographic is up 46%. So millennials are buying more secondhand apparel, 37% more, and Gen Zers are actually buying 46% more secondhand apparels. Elizabeth, I think Loon is, is kind of re-imaging fashion in a lot of ways. And you're kind of on that front edge of what new fashion is going to look like. Can you tell us about your work? Sure, yeah. Um, so I actually um, started Loon, a uh, sustainable design studio, uh, with some free time I had um, during the COVID pandemic. And I've always been um, creative and um, I've always sewn, um, learned the tradition from, you know, my grandmother's. And so, um, you know, with, with some extra time, I just, you know, picked up a sewing machine and, um, you know, I, again, saw what everyone was doing on, you know, social media and Instagram and, you know, kind of relearned how um, to sew and relearned this skill that I hadn't, you know, hadn't done for years. And 
Um, part of it was for me, I wanted to make myself, um, you know, sustainable clothing, you know, kind of shift away from the fast fashion, be a little bit more uh, conscientious. Um, I kind of started listening to podcasts on low waste, zero waste. And I think um, what you wear and uh, what you choose is really um, a part of that as well. And so um, what I've started doing is just reimagining vintage and antique, antique textiles. Um, so there is a, you know, a trend that comes around uh, every so often. And so um, if, if you've seen some of the bigger, um, you know, uh, news publications like the New York Times did uh, did an article on the rise of quilt coats and quilt jackets. And so I just thought it was so cool. It's so fun to have something so unique and to take something that somebody has spent literally probably hundreds of hours creating and reimagine it. Um, so you take it off of the shelf or out of the closet and, you know, give it new life. Um, part of what I also am looking to do is really reduce, you know, my personal, you know, footprint. And so I like to, um, you know, go to Scraps KC. They're phenomenal. They're down, um, they're downtown. Uh, I'm terrible with directions, so I'm not going to give you the location, <laughs> but they are, you know, fabulous. They have um, all kinds of, um, you know, just, all kinds of art supplies, anything you could ever imagine you didn't know you needed, Scraps has. Um, and so you can get fabric there. Um, so I've used them uh, as a tremendous resource just for, you know, just walking around and picking things up. Um, you end up spending so much less than going to a big box, you know, uh, hobby store. Um, I was so excited to meet Eileen um, at the sewing labs. You know, I think that even in, you know, uh, the four months that I've been doing uh, and running Loon, you know, there's a startup cost. Like you said, we don't always have a sewing machine, or if you do, you might not know how to work it. And so having community organizations that really provide the infrastructure, the support and the capacity to embrace slow fashion, to embrace mindful mending. Um, so somebody that can't afford to go buy a brand new sewing machine or somebody that doesn't want to, you know, can just go to the sewing labs. Um, so I think that the community aspect is really important as well. Um, when you look at the Kansas City community, um, thrifting and repurposing is, is significant. Um, there's so many amazing stores that um, really curate um, reused uh, and vintage goods. Um, so there is a really great alternative to fast fashion in Kansas City. Stores like Do Good Company, Do Good Co. Um, down in the crossroads, they have um, a variety of different uh, vintage vendors that they that they feature. Um, there's another store called the Deer Collective, which I actually popped up at um, this past weekend. And so they bring together um, all kinds of women and female owned entrepreneurs, artists, and uh, vintage collectors. And they um, basically run the store. There's also Peaches Vintage Collective. Um, and what really got me going was the Strawberry Swing. Um, my dear friend, Katie Mabry, who's also involved in the sewing labs, um, started out as a maker and she evolved into providing this community for all kinds of makers. And, and so as you start to get involved in 
um, the maker community and in, you know, repurposing um, and the arts community within Kansas City, you realize, you know, how significant um, and how um, far along that we are as a community um, within the, the kind of um, con conscious consumption movement. Conscious consumption in Kansas City. Uh, and you spent some time in New York. Do you, do you see the coast? I mean, are they also moving in these directions? Are we catching up with them? Or are we kind of on the, the front of this trend? So it's interesting. I. You know, I would say, you know, there's definitely some bigger brands, uh, bigger sustainable brands um, based on the coast. So I know in L.A. Um, and New York, there's brands like Everlane and, you know, brands that are really focused on short run quality, timeless Um I think Kansas City, um, you know, because and, and the middle of America, you know, there's not the the same level of hustle and bustle and grind. So I think that, you know, the innovation here and the community and the, 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 the connections that we make just based on where we are, I think sets us apart as a community. But they're definitely, I think the big brands are taking note when you look at, you know, brands like Patagonia um, and their big uh, brand marketing campaign um, around, you know, don't buy, or, you know, don't buy this, like don't shop. So I do think that there's big brands that are leading the way um, that are helping pull along, you know, some of the more fast fashion brands. But um it's a work in progress. It's a good work in progress. I'm excited to see that happen. Um, some of the misconceptions, I mean, the whole selling point of fast fashion is it's cheap, you know, economically, what does that mean to us? Yet, if it's gonna fall away after two wears, is that really cheap? Just think of, of putting 60, $80 into a nice piece of fashion, something that's, that's generic, not trendy, something that you could wear for several years. Um, if you're gonna replace a piece every two weeks, and it's $10 a pop, you know, how long does it take for those, those throwaway clothing to end up costing you more than that nice piece of fashion that you can buy and wear? So, I mean, there, there's lots of things that we can do to change this trend. And the interesting thing about this industry is that we as individuals can actually make a difference. This isn't some industry that needs, you know, activists well, it does at some levels. I mean, the human rights and stuff, and I really applaud your work, Judy. But, you know, uh, the industry doesn't have to wait for the activists. It doesn't require um, government regulation. We as individuals can control this industry with our pocketbooks. This industry is based on us buying fast fashions. And if we all stop doing that, then the problem changes. It goes away. It becomes better. So there, there are things that we should think about doing. We should shop less frequently and shop our closet. Look at what we've got. You know, if, if you need something new, shop secondhand and vintage. And all these new fashions and makers are out there that's making this a, a wonderful experience. When you go shopping, buy fewer options, buy fewer items. Don't go buy things spontaneously, buy what you need. And, you know, when you're shopping, try to avoid the fast fashion brands, shop smaller local businesses, buy quality that will last longer because it's going to save you money. And buy timeless designs and seasonless styles. If, if you buy that, um, that, that funky Christmas sweatshirt, you're only going to get to wear that one year. But if you bought a, a nice generic sweatshirt and decorated it, you can wear that a lot. Another thing is to choose the sustainable fabrics. You know, we've seen that linen and hemp, just a few kilojoules to produce that compared to 
hundreds of kilojoules of energy to produce the, you know, the, the um, petrol fibers. Um, there's the also concept of owning your fashion. You know, love the few things that you buy, repair and repurpose. You know, why throw something away because you can't put a button on it? You can learn to sew a button. I can sew a button and, you know, that's something to say. I can sew a button and you can too. You know, launder less and hang dry your clothing. It will last longer. Don't think disposable. Think about owning your clothes, owning clothes that you love. They're not consumables, they're part of your life. And then the idea of picking up a needle and joining the maker movement. I mean, Eileen has those options and there's a lot of places where we can learn how to sew. So thank you everybody. Um, I want to um, thank all our guests. You can find a lot of this information on the Climate Council's website, and that's at www.climategkc.org. Where can we learn more about the, the cross-border network, Judy? Where, where would we go to learn more about them? Uh, you can go to our webpage, which is crossbordernetwork.org. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, which we keep, we post news, um, particularly um, Latin America, um, on our on our Facebook page, you can uh, and uh, you can come to events. We have uh, get on our mailing list. Come to events. We have um, we do a number of Zoom events about uh, politics, immigration, and why immigration isn't going to change until we change our policies in Latin America, and that would include the sweatshops too. Thank you, Jerry. Rihanna, where can we go to learn about the KU's Aquatic Ecology Lab? Yeah, so you can like email us or um, I know we have a website, but. Um, if somebody Googled KU Aquatic Ecology Lab, oh. it would come up with the website and stuff too. Yeah, yes, the, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's very cool, thank you. Eileen, where did we go to, to connect with the Sewing Lab? Sure, uh, the sewinglabs.community is our website and we're on Facebook as well and all the different events and workshops and classes that we offer, um, we promote on our Facebook page as well. So like us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Elizabeth, where do we go to learn about Loon? Yeah, so I'm actually on Instagram at Loon and Co. So it's L-O-O-N-A-N-D-C-O. And then also um, loonandco.com is my website. So Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about us at climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.